Many of us will know stories about our families that have been handed down, little snippets here and there of a parent or grandparent and the things they did. I was reminded this week in the heightened concerns about health and how sometimes people can overreact to things. I was reminded about a story about my uh, grandfather, which illustrates how easily things can get out of hand. He was at boarding school in the early 1920s, and he hated doing cross-country running in the freezing cold, so one day he told them he wasn't feeling well to get out of it. They called a doctor, they asked a few questions, to which he made up some answers, and the next thing he knew, they drew a curtain round his bed in the boarding house at his school, and he was put to sleep, and they removed his appendix there and then. Now, that is a, a great family story to, to, to tell to one another. It's the kind of story that didn't just get told once when I was growing up. It got told regularly, over and over again, because it told us something. I don't know what, but it told us something about where we had come from, told us something about who we were. It said, don't make up things to get out of cross-country or something far worse might befall you. Now, we've been seeing, as we've looked at Genesis earlier this term, that these stories are the family history of God's people. They explain where they came from. And where you come from helps you to understand who you are. The overall message of the life of Jacob is reasonably straightforward. It's summed up in the title for our series. It is Relentless Grace. It takes us to the heart of Christian faith. And it's relentless because the message of God's free, undeserved love for sinners is not something you ever move on from as a Christian. It is the family story that we need to keep repeating to one another to remind ourselves of who God is and who we are before him and who we are as his people. Now, if you missed the first half of our series in the life of Jacob, we've seen Jacob is a deceiver. He's a manipulative schemer who stops at nothing to get what he wants, to get his way. He's manipulated his older brother Esau out of his birthright. He's manipulated his father Isaac to bless him. But then, in his uncle Laban, he appears to have met his match. Laban has manipulated him into marrying Leah before he could marry Rachel. And in many ways, Jacob's time with Laban is the turning point in the story of his life from chapters 25 to 35 before the focus shifts to Joseph. Now, Jacob, verse 25 has decided it's time to go home with his two wives and the 11 children born to him so far. But he's still got more to learn. The hero of this episode, once again, is not Jacob or Laban or Rachel. It's God, who once again wants to show his people relentless grace that they don't deserve even through this slightly quirky tale of primitive breeding methods. Sounds slightly bizarre to modern ears. This is the family history of God's people. And if we're trusting in Jesus, then this is our family history too. So what can we see here? Well, we can see three things. As you can see on the, on the green notice sheet, on the back of that, you can see the, the outline. Three things that we need to keep hearing again and again and again to understand who God is, to understand who we are. 
So here's the first thing. God brings justice to the unjust. God brings justice to the unjust. This is, a, is essentially what happens to Laban in this episode. You could call this the end of Laban. We don't hear from him again after chapter 31. He's proved himself to be manipulative and calculating. And he carries on true to form in these verses. Laban is a little bit like Hotel California. You know, we are programmed to receive. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. And uh, that's exactly how Laban is with his family when they come to stay. He knows how to pull a fast one, and he knows how to get people to stay around just a little bit longer. Yes, I know you want to go, but here's, here's another thing you can do before you depart. And he starts in verse 27 with flattery. And then an offer to pay wages. It's, it's always about wages with Laban. Jacob worked 14 years for Leah and Rachel. If he wants more, he's going to have to work even longer. And so now it's a showdown between two deceitful manipulators at the top of their game. Jacob makes the first move. In a flock of goats or sheep or lambs or whatever, most of them are plain, boring, white or brown. A few are multicoloured, or in the case of the lambs, a few are, are dark, black sheep. Uh, many are speckled, spotted, striped. And so they, they stand out, they're easy to pick out. So, so Jacob says, how about this then? I take the minority, speckled, spotted, striped, dark ones, and you, Laban, keep the rest. So you can easily see then if I'm cheating you just by looking at my flock. That's what he says, verse 33. So Laban says it's a deal. But what does, what does he then do? Well, he'd make a good lawyer, Laban. He finds the loophole that he needs for what I believe is called a, a commercial solution to the problem. Jacob has said he will have all the spot, speckled, spotted and striped animals. And so if there aren't any speckled, spotted or striped animals, he can't have any, can he? So straight away, he takes all the speckled, spotted, striped animals and puts them in the care of his sons and puts a three-day journey between him and Jacob. And then Jacob, by reply, engages in a rather strange bit of genetic engineering. Jacob is a pragmatic, solution-focused kind of guy, and he works out that if the animals mate in front of bits of wood with bark peeled off in white stripes, they give birth to speckled, spotted and striped young. And then verse 41, he compounds this by selecting only the strongest animals to mate. And so by the end of the chapter, verse 43, in this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and maidservants and men servants and camels and donkeys. So he's getting one up on Laban, who's trying to get one up on him. Now, what on earth is going on here? Well, it kind of makes sense to us to put the strongest animals to mate together. We, we can kind of understand that. But the rest of it just seems like primitive superstition, doesn't it? Well, the story continues in chapter 31. Now, I'm not going to read every verse. It's a very long chapter. But just look with me. Look, look down with me at, at various bits that I'll point out to you. So, verse 4, he calls Rachel and Leah... And verse 5, his explanation for what's been going on here in the previous chapter is that the, the God of my father has been with me. But verse 7, God 
has not allowed Laban, who's cheated him and adjusted his wages ten times, he's not allowed Laban to harm him. And so verse 8, if he said the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And if he said the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked young. So, verse 9, God has taken away your father's livestock, Rachel and Leah, and has given them to me. In the breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled or spotted. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled or spotted. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. So this helps us understand, you see? Whatever is going on here is God's work, not merely Jacob's. Do you see? This tree branches thing isn't something that Jacob sort of dreamt up and you know, they really believed this was how things worked. This, this is God revealing in a dream to Jacob do this and I will bless you and I will use this to rescue you and I will use this to bring justice to your unjust uncle Laban. So that's the first thing we need to see for ourselves and for our own encouragement, in fact. Because this is an illustration of something the Bible says over and over again, that those who act unjustly, like Laban does consistently, they will receive justice. The first readers of this on the edge of the promised land would be thinking of Pharaoh and how he mistreated God's people. And they know, yes, he was trying to hold God's people. He was trying to stop them from going. And he received justice. And although what happens to Laban is not as extreme as what happens to Pharaoh, there is that sense that those who engage in manipulation and deceit will themselves inevitably end up manipulated and deceived. And that is what he deserves, isn't it? Jacob emphasises this later in chapter 31 when he says uh, that, that Laban changed his wages ten times. Laban has been deeply unjust in the way he's treated him. Now in Psalm 73, in the, in the book of Psalms, the psalmist Asaph cries out, that he wants to trust that God is good, but all he can see around him is the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, he says. They're free from the burdens common to man. And the resolution only comes when he goes into the sanctuary and he remembers God is a God of justice. And he will act. So we too need not fear today when we fear that justice has not been done. When Jeffrey Epstein commits suicide before he can stand trial for sexual abuse, God is a God of justice. This is not the end. When Christians are imprisoned for being Christians in North Korea or in China, God is a God of justice. When we look closer to home and we see how people around us just seem to manipulate their way through life, they manipulate their ways, their way up the career ladder. They care nothing for those they push out of the way to get there. God is a God of justice. Take heart. 
But that still leaves us with something rather unsettling, which is that Jacob hardly deserves to be treated any differently from his uncle. He's just as much a manipulator and a deceiver. And we might say the same. As we look around us in the world around us, we know there's so much injustice in the world, but can we say of ourselves that we are free from sin and from behaving like the world around us? Why then does Jacob not get what he deserves? That's why we need to see the second thing here, which is that while God brings justice to the unjust, he is also a God who saves sinners who don't deserve it. God saves sinners who don't deserve it. That is what's going on here with Jacob. And we've seen this over and over again. Jacob is a nasty piece of work, and yet God is determined to include him in his plans to save the world through Abraham's family. And over and over again in these verses, we read of how God was with Jacob. He was with him. Chapter 31, verse 42. So towards the end of of the chapter on the next page. The God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac has been on my side. This is not what Jacob deserves, and yet it is what Jacob receives. And again, we might think, we've heard this before. We, we, we get it, you know, amazing grace. We understand this, don't we? And yet, we still struggle to believe that God could show grace to Jacob. Isn't it unfair? Now, the reason Genesis and the whole Bible keep repeating this message of relentless, amazing grace over and over again is that human beings find it so hard to hear and understand that God gives the undeserving what they don't deserve. If you're looking into Christian things, maybe you've not yet seen that this is right at the heart of what Christianity is about, that God doesn't give us what we deserve. Because if we did that, we would only receive his judgment. So we heard in the first reading from Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took the judgment we deserve on his own shoulders. The problem is if we don't get this, if we don't believe this, if we forget it, we will be constantly disappointed by the sin in our own hearts and the sin in the hearts of others. This is so important for us to see because so often it's when we forget this that we get into problems. So can you think of something that maybe a Christian has said or done that has irritated you, that has hurt you? Well, we need to know, don't we? God saves sinners who don't deserve it. That is the point of the gospel. That is the good news about Jesus. He saved them if they're trusting in Jesus. And his grace is enough for you and for me as well. Maybe it's our own family. Maybe it's close friends. And we kind of constantly feel like we're, we're, we're overlooked, we're forgotten, we're ignored, walked all over, or, or, or even manipulated, or, or feeling let down, rejected, unloved. We need to know and believe that God saves sinners who don't deserve it. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, says Paul in his 
letter to the Colossians. If God's grace comes only to those who deserve it, then we'll be like the Pharisees that we met over the last three weeks in Luke chapter 15. We'll be constantly looking down on others, but willfully blind to our own sin and our own weak spots. What do we boast in? What gets us out of bed in the morning? What do we long for? What do we rejoice in? If it is something other than knowing God and serving God and living for Jesus in everything that we do, the reason is probably that we've lost sight of this most simple truth, that God saves sinners who don't deserve it. Martin Luther reputedly said, I couldn't find a source for this quote, but apparently he said this, when I look at my sin, I despair and think, how can I be saved? But when I look at my saviour, I rejoice and think, how can I be lost? See, we need to start the day praising God for his relentless grace, end the day praising God for it. And we will find that everything in between is different. And we can see what happens in between differently. We need his grace that comes in Christ. And then with that, we need to see thirdly, finally, God faithfully keeps his promises even while his people act unfaithfully. God faithfully keeps his promises even while his people act unfaithfully. Remember the promise God made to Jacob when he was younger back in chapter 28? He promised him the land that he's standing on, the land of Canaan. He promises offspring like the dust of the earth and he promises to bless him. Kind of continuing the promises he made to Abraham, then Isaac, now Jacob. And we're at a point in the life of Jacob where things are coming together. He has very much been blessed, though he doesn't deserve it. He has 11 sons and a daughter at this point. Now they just need to get into the land. And that is why Jacob is trying to leave Laban. So he's trying to obey God's command to return. And so look at verse 17. In, in chapter 31. It's on page 34. Follow with me. Ja- Jacob takes Rachel and Leah with him. And verse 19, Rachel steals her father's household gods. And what follows is mildly comic. So let, let me read from verse 25. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him. And Laban and his relatives camped there too. Then Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? You've deceived me and you've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me? So that I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and harps. Yeah, right, Laban. We we believe that. You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you, but... Last night, the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you have gone off because you long to return to your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. But if you find anyone who has your gods, he shall not live in the presence of our relatives. See for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me. And if so, take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. 
So this is all a bit dramatic, isn't it? What's going to happen? Verse 33, Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maidservants, but he found nothing. And after he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Now the tension is building. What's going to happen now? Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel's saddle and was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, don't be angry, my Lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. So he searched but could not find the household gods. Now, Jacob, completely unaware of Rachel's crime, he, he, he then goes on to, to lose his temper with Laban. So much of the rest of the chapter is this big speech about all his resentment with Laban comes pouring out. And they make a treaty and then they part company. But you see what's going on here? God is certainly acting faithfully to keep his promises through Jacob and his family, despite the fact that Jacob is such a mess, and despite the fact he keeps on acting manipulatively and deceitfully, God has made this promise and he's going to keep it. But meanwhile, even as this is happening, Rachel is messing around with household gods, pagan gods. Now, we don't quite know what her motives are, but again, think of an Israelite first reader of these stories. They know you don't mess with other gods. They, they, they've heard the Ten Commandments in, in the book of Exodus. They know when God says, you shall have no other gods but me in the Ten Commandments. They really know he was serious about it. So you don't do this kind of thing. What's going on then with Rachel? She seems to be hedging her bets. No, she's kind of leaving her family behind, setting off for a new life, finally with Jacob, but you know, just in case I'm going to nick some household gods and take them along with me in case I need them. And, and part of what happens here highlights the foolishness of going after other gods. Because what does she have to do? She ends up sitting on them. These are meant to be gods. She's pretending to be bleeding. It's about as disrespectful as you can get with a wooden household god to, to, to you know, end up sitting on them in that way. But of course, this is how it works with false gods. They don't protect you. You have to protect them. Now, the interesting thing is in this chapter, this incident seems to pass almost without comment. There's no lightning bolts from the sky. You know, you must not do this. There's no moral lesson from the narrator. Just the faithfulness of God contrasted yet again with the unfaithfulness of his people. Now we may think, yes, I've, I get this, I've heard this, it's something the Bible keeps saying, but don't we need to keep on hearing it? Because we so easily prefer to hedge our bets. We say we trust God, but in practice, we wonder, like Rachel, if we wouldn't be wise to, you know, just trust ourselves and our ingenuity a little bit as well now at the prayer meeting this week we prayed about the coronavirus situation and we prayed about it today as well and of course we do need to do that we absolutely must but it's easy isn't it to get caught up in the kind of godless atheistic hysteria that thinks it's only down to us to save ourselves and to save our world i read a quote at the prayer meeting from the early church historian Eusebius who wrote in the fourth century about when the plague hit the, 
the city of Alexandria. Now, he calls it the pestilence, but it's the plague. And it's the kind of illness that you could catch very quickly and die very quickly. And that, indeed, is what happened to many in, in Alexandria. I think it was in the 3rd or 4th century. But listen to his description of how the early Christians reacted to this. The most of our brethren were unsparing in their exceeding love and brotherly kindness. They held fast to each other and visited the sick fearlessly and ministered to them continually, serving them in Christ. And they died with them most joyfully taking the affliction of others and drawing the sickness from their neighbours to themselves and willingly receiving their pains. And many who cared for the sick and gave strength to others died themselves, having transferred to themselves their death. Truly, the best of our brethren departed from life in this manner, including some presbyters and deacons and those of the people who had the highest reputation, so that this form of death through the great piety and strong faith it exhibited, seemed to lack nothing of martyrdom. And they took the bodies of the saints in their open hands and in their bosoms and closed their eyes eyes and their mouths and they bore them away on their shoulders and laid them out. And they clung to them and embraced them and they prepared them suitably with washings and garments. And after a little, they received like treatment themselves. For the survivors were continually following those who had gone before them. But with the heathen, everything was quite otherwise. They deserted those who began to be sick and fled from their dearest friends. They shunned any participation or fellowship with death, which, yet with all their precautions, it was not easy for them to escape. Now, we hope and pray that we're not in quite that plague-ridden situation, of course, and it does sound a little bit, as you listen to that, as if the Christians weren't being all that responsible about how they loved their neighbour and they probably were passing on the infection and we might question whether that's the wisest way to do things, but is there not something there about wholehearted, faithful trust in God in contrast with a world that is obsessed with the idol, the, the, the household God, if you like, of health and wealth and prosperity. Do you see? A world that is therefore terrified of death, powerless to do anything about it, and therefore kind of morbidly obsessed with it. But these Christians, they they did not fear what others feared. They weren't doing the equivalent of hiding household gods in their bags like Rachel, just in case the God of the universe didn't come through for them. They knew Jesus had conquered death and they acted in the light of it. We can trust our Heavenly Father. And we can be encouraged from these stories in Genesis. As quirky as they are, we've heard these things before, we need to keep hearing them, don't we? These are our family stories. We need to keep telling them to each other. God brings justice to the unjust. God saves sinners who don't deserve it. God faithfully keeps his promises, even when his people act unfaithfully. Let's reflect on that and then let me lead us in prayer.
Father, we know that our lives are full of mess and sin and brokenness because of how we reject you and because of how we act unwisely and make things even worse for ourselves. And we live in a world where that is happening too. We praise you, therefore, that we can know with confidence that you are a God of relentless grace who will bring justice, who saves sinners, and who acts faithfully, even while your people continue to act in unfaithful ways. We praise you that you are faithful. You keep your promises. So in the light of all that's going on in our world and in our lives, we praise you that we can come to you knowing that Jesus died for us, for our sin and our, our, our idolatry. And thank you that he is alive and with us now as we live for you and seek to continue to encourage each other and continue to share this good news with your world. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.